Welcome to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, showcasing BYU devotionals that blend reason and science with faith, university disciplines with discipleship, and the scholarly with the sacred. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. It's an honor to be here today and to address you. It seems like only a few years where I sat, where you're sitting, or actually in the Wilkinson Center. Things were, uh, were different then. Uh, the Beatles were the only boy band. Um, uh, Bell Telephone was the only telephone company in the, in the country. Uh, BYU Cafeteria Food was all they served at the Cougar Eat. And uh, Emma was Joseph Smith's only wife. Um, <laughs> now, as you heard, I was an English major, and that meant that I liked reading and, uh, and writing. It also meant that I had no idea what I was going to do with my career. The, uh, the self-help guides that I read said I was doomed because they claimed that to have a successful life, you had to have a clear goal in mind and then work relentlessly for that goal. But that isn't how life worked out for me. As a matter of fact, almost nothing I've done in my career was planned in advance. I could hardly have predicted that I would get into politics, for instance. Uh, when I stepped into the auditorium to debate Ted Kennedy in Boston's famous Faneuil Hall, I turned to Anne and I said to her, sweetie, in your wildest dreams, did you ever see me running for U.S. Senate? And she said, Mitt, you weren't in my wildest dreams. <laughs> I've gotten some mileage out of that line, but the truth is, she didn't really say that. <laughs> that, that was a joke I bought from a campaign joke writer. And, <laughs> And every time I hear some politician use that joke, I want a royalty. It's not fair. <laughs> now, you probably know the most remarkable of my life's journeys was the one I only recently completed, and that was having the honor of running for president. And, and in case you haven't heard, I lost. Um, uh, actually, I'd prefer to say that I won the silver medal. Uh, it's... Uh, it's something that gives you perspective. Um, I remember Walter Mondale. He had the misfortune of running against Ronald Reagan and losing badly. He got shellacked in that race. And he, he remarked that he always wanted to run for president in the worst way. And that's just what he did. <laughs> now, despite the loss, the experience was extraordinary and revealing. I, I've come away more optimistic about the country. I met people from across the nation. People who don't make the nightly news, but people who make daily innovations and discoveries that propel our economy and provide for our future. I met parents who sacrificed their resources and their careers, in some cases, for their kids. Military men and women who willingly serve in some of the most hostile environments on the earth. And while it's fashionable in some circles to deny it, I firmly believe that America is the greatest nation on earth. The experiences during my campaign also impressed on me singular life lessons. Uh, 
And I thought I might share some of those lessons with you today. At the beginning of a campaign, you experience a good deal of what I'll call unwelcome anonymity. Nobody knows who you are. Sometimes, by the way, people would come up to me and say, you know, you look familiar. Who, who are you? And I have a standard response to that. I say, I'm Tom Brady, the New England Patriots. <laughs> and that evokes a predictable laugh. But there was one time a, a guy said, oh, I'm a fan. Can I get a picture? And I, I said, sure. Uh, I can only imagine the guffaws when he shows that picture to his friends. There was another... Uh, Another time uh, when I was reminded of my anonymity, I was uh, at a hotel in San Francisco, at a Marriott hotel there, and, and I'd arranged for a massage to, to loosen my back because believe it or not, after hundreds and sometimes thousands of handshakes in a day, my back got tight on the one side, I shake with my right hand. And so after the massage, the masseuse, who obviously was unaware of my political career, she remarked to my assistant who was there, Mr. Romney has strong legs, he's a dancer, isn't he? That's probably the best uh, uh, compliment I got during the campaign. Uh, but the, uh, the anonymity is soon lost, and in some remarkable ways. Uh, during my last campaign, I was taken aside by one of our national security agencies, and I was informed that all my emails were being monitored and closely read by a foreign government. In fact, the same was true for all the people who had emailed me my staff, my friends, my family, and all of their mails, emails were also being monitored by the government of that nation. And believe it or not, the words of a hymn came to mind. Angels above us are silent notes taking of every action, then do what is right. <laughs> no, the, the government involved was no angel. But, uh, but our words and deeds may well be recorded in heaven. And so, I presume, are the pages we open on the internet and the sites we browse. Our anonymous surfing may not be recorded on earth, but it surely leaves an imprint in the book of life. Remember, every day you're writing your autobiography. Now, early in the campaign, it can be difficult to attract an audience to a political rally, particularly if it's during working hours. And I remember early during my campaign, one event we'd scheduled in New Hampshire. Now, we have a summer home uh, in that state, in Wolfboro, but the rally was at least an hour away from, from our home. And I knew the media that followed the campaign would read a lot into whether or not I'd attracted a crowd to this event or not. So you can imagine how relieved I was to step onto the stage and see a large and enthusiastic audience greeting me. Looking closer, I realized I was looking at almost the entire Wolfboro branch of the church. <laughs> Fortunately, the media hadn't figured that out. <laughs> now, there may be times in your life when you feel that it's a bit of a burden being a member of the church. Some folks will think you're not Christian. Some may be insulted that you don't drink with them, or others may think you're trying to be better than them by not swearing. But I can affirm this based on that experience and many others in my life. Your fellow members of the church will be a blessing that far more than compensates. They'll bless you when you're sick, lift you up when you fall, help you raise a teenager, counsel you about a job, and yes, even move your unpacked junk into an apartment. We are not perfect, 
As a matter of fact, in many things, we're probably no better than anyone else. But we are remarkably good as a people at reaching out our hands to one another in need. Decide to be one of those that does just that. Now, a campaign can be a heady thing as well. At my first 2012 presidential debate in Denver, the miles of Interstate Expressway from my hotel all the way to the editorium were closed to all traffic for me. My motorcade was led by 30 or so motorcycles and police vehicles. Their lights were flashing red and, and blue. I was accompanied by the Secret Service. That includes not only the detail of agents that surrounded Anna and me in our bulletproof SUV, but also the tactical unit that follows, armed with machine guns and sitting with an open rear tailgate facing any vehicle that might come from behind us. And the Secret Service was only the, uh, the icing on the adulation cake. Day after day, thousands of people were shouting my name, investing in me their hopes for victory. The day before the election, Kid Rock electrified a packed arena in New Hampshire for me, and the crowd cheered for anime when we were introduced for three solid minutes before we could speak. The day after the election <laughs> was different. <laughs> the Secret Service was gone. They'd asked to stay out another week or so, but we said, look, that's an unnecessary opposition, or imposition on, on the taxpayers and on you. And the cheers were gone as well, replaced by the agonizing reappraisal by others of what had gone wrong. And I was back to driving my own car, filling my own gas tank, buying groceries at Costco, just like I've been doing for several decades before. Now, truthfully, Anne and I had never become caught up in all the flurry. I know that may be hard to believe, but throughout the journey, we saw ourselves in exactly the same way as we had throughout our marriage. We knew that win or lose, any acclaim would eventually be forgotten. As uh, Jimmy Durante, a singer from way ago, once sang, fame, if you win it, comes and goes in a minute. What we treasure from the campaign was not the pomp and the popularity. It was the friends that we made. Among the Secret Service, by, just as an example, we became very close friends with a number of the agents that we spent time with. In, in fact, as we prepared to go on to the stage to concede victory to President Obama, more than one of those agents fought back tears. We missed them as friends, not as um, power candy. Now, living life can be self-consuming. Who you are can be overshadowed by what you do or by what you've done. If you allow that to happen, the inevitable twists and turns of secular life can warp your self-confidence and limit your ambition and test your faith and depress your happiness. You're not defined by secular measures. You're a child of a heavenly father who loves you. You're his work and his glory. And that statement confirms your incomparable worth. The statement also informs your life's most important work, to lift others, to lift your family and spouse if you marry, and to remain true and faithful to the Almighty. Now, I can't speak of my election loss without adding a few thoughts about how I think God works. I know that's well above my pay grade, uh, Elder Rasband. Uh, but, uh, 
But after five decades of, of adult life and many years of pastoring in the church, I've come to some preliminary conclusions. First, God does not always intervene in the affairs of men to make things work out the way we'd like them to. In our heads, we all know that. But I can't tell you how many members of the church I've spoken with over my life who think God will help their business succeed or help them get the promotion they want or make their investments profitable. I don't think God will intervene to help you get rich. There may be some exceptions, but I wouldn't count on it. What he does guarantee is written in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 90, verse 24. Search diligently, pray always, and be believing, and all things shall work together for your good. If you walk uprightly and remember the covenant wherewith ye have covenanted one with another. I once rode in a car with Elder F. Enzio Busha, then of the 70. As I recall the conversation, and it's been a while, he related that while he was a businessman in Germany, the company that he owned was in dire condition on a path towards bankruptcy and liquidation. He was distraught. One night, in great pain and sadness, he went into a field and knelt in the cold and the dark, and he poured out his heart to the Lord hour after hour. And miraculously, he actually heard a voice from heaven. But only one word was spoken, and that word, work. More often than not, our secular affairs are up to us. Don't count on God to save you from the consequences of your decisions or to arrange earthly affairs to work in your favor. Now, one of the things that I think defines the great majority of Americans I met during the campaign and afterward is they live for a purpose greater than themselves, their school, their university, their community, their nation, their church. And during my campaign, Ann and I were frequently reminded of our greater purpose. You may find it uh, hard to imagine what it's like to debate an opponent on national TV. I was not a high school debater. In fact, until I got into politics, the only person I'd ever debated was my five-year-old son, Matt, and he usually won. <laughs> my, uh, my 2012 campaign had 23 televised debates, 20 with fellow Republicans, and three with President Obama. And these guys were no debate slouches. Newt Gingrich had been Speaker of the House. President Obama, well, he'd, he'd been president for four years. He kind of had his facts nailed down by then. So you may have read that one of the candidates for governor this year in Florida put a fan under the podium when he debated. I know why. Debating can be sweaty business, all right? And so before every one of my debates, I did something to keep things in perspective, to keep myself grounded. At the top of a sheet of paper that was always placed on the podium so we could make notes during the debate, just before the debate kicked off, I wrote at the top one word, Dad. I also drew a small image of the sun. And throughout the debate, when I glanced down at that paper to look at my notes that I'd taken, I was reminded of my father's fearlessness in fighting for what he believed was right. And the sun, that reminded me, of course, of that familiar scripture, let your light so shine. Win or lose that debate, 
I hoped I would never do anything that would dishonor or discredit the things I hold most dear. Now, during your life, you're going to encounter circumstances that make you sweat. For many of you, the exams and tests won't be over when you graduate, and you're all going to stand at podiums, stand in front of a boss to ask for a raise, or work on some critical project in your employment that'll make a big difference in your life. At moments like those, perspective is a very powerful friend. You can welcome perspective through preparatory prayer, by considering the blessings of the temple, or by simply glancing at your CTR ring. Find ways to keep your life in perspective. One of the most meaningful aspects of my campaign was meeting remarkable people. I met Lech Walesa in Poland. When, uh, when the Soviet Union invaded Poland, they rounded up thousands of that nation's most influential people, and then they shot them. There was to be no leader available for a revolt. And against that backdrop, this shipyard electrician said no. No to the oppression, no to the Soviets. And he formed a union, solidarity of fellow workers, and joined a barricade behind shipyard gates. And the communists blinked. What followed was a movement which led to the freedom of an entire nation. And so when I, I came to meet this hero, I was honored. And he, he welcomed me in and he said, look, you've come a long way. You must be tired. You sit. I'll talk. You listen. And so I did. And time and again, he implored, by the way, he said, the world needs American leadership. Where is American leadership? He'd go region by region of the world and say, we need American leadership. At the end of all this, and I said almost nothing, he endorsed my candidacy for president. Taught me a lesson. And uh, I guess I don't recall being more humbled than I was that day with Lequilessa. I also met Cardinal Dolan in the rectory of New York City. His is a mighty voice for religious freedom. I met Billy Graham at his mountain home. He prayed for me. His, of course, is a voice that has long called people to come to Jesus. I met the Lutheran former Bishop of Stockholm. His counsel on judging other religions, by the way, was instructive. Let me pass it along. He said he had three rules for understanding another faith. First, learn about that faith from one of its adherents, not from one of its detractors. And second, compare the best of one religion with the best of another, not the best of one with the worst of another. And third, he said, leave room for religious jealousy. And I said, what do you mean by religious jealousy? And he said that in every religion he had encountered, there was something he wishes that were part of his church. Among Mormons, for instance, he spoke of our missionary program. Among Catholics, their reverence for the Pope and so forth. Now, from all the admirable and heroic people I met, I was impressed with the enormity of the influence of one single person. Time and again, one person makes all the difference in the lives of multitudes. One man ushered in the freedom of an entire nation. One man led to an evangelical awakening. And as we know, one man restored the church of Jesus Christ to the earth. Each of you here will influence other lives. Think of that. Perhaps you'll shape history. Perhaps you'll shape one person's history. 
Consider with care how you act, what you say, and to what you're going to devote your life to. Because I assure you, your choices will shape the lives of other people. I met other people I call heroes during my campaign, by the way, not quite so famous. At one of my uh, first speeches in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, the applause from the audience seemed to be instigated by someone with a loud, piercing shout. Isn't he wonderful? She would yell. Or, uh, we love you, Mitch, you're the best. I can assure you, I was as pleased as I was startled. And then after my remarks, this delightful middle-aged woman named Joni Scotter made her way up to the stage and threw her arms around me. That was the first time I met Joni, but it was far from the last, because over the years, I've seen Joni dozens of times. She drives to wherever I may be in eastern Iowa, and at every speech, her enthusiastic squeals of support energize both me and and the audience. She's a hero to me. And another day, uh, as my motorcade approached a rally in New Hampshire, I noticed that someone had gone way over the top in decorating their pickup truck. He'd, he'd built a scaffold of sorts in the back of the truck and mounted these enormous Romney posters on both sides of it. And the rest of the truck was entirely decked out with my bumper stickers and flags and posters. And there was this man standing next to it. He was tall, white-haired, smoked a pipe, wearing shorts with long white tube socks that came up to his knees. <laughs> a few days later, I, I was pulling into an event in Iowa and I saw the same truck. In fact, it seemed that wherever I went, that truck was parked out front and that man with the white tube socks was standing next to it. <laughs> that may not seem that unusual, but I was flying from place to place and he was driving. <laughs> this guy, Jim Wilson, turned out to be 70 years old. By the midpoint of my 2012 campaign, he had attended 150 of my events and he had logged 40,000 miles on his 1998 GMC pickup. On one of his long drives, uh, some fellows at the fuel stop had given him some lip about uh, his support for me. And, And so he left, but shortly thereafter, he looked in the bed of his truck and he saw that his posters and scaffolding were on fire. And soon the entire truck was engulfed, totaled. Of course, we, uh, we decided to help Jim get another pickup truck. Uh, how could I possibly go to a rally without Jim Wilson and his truck at the entrance? And, and by the way, this October of this year, I was in Iowa again to campaign for a candidate who was running for U.S. Senate. And there he was. And kindly, he presented me with a brand new pair of white tube socks. <laughs> Jim is, uh, is also one of my heroes. And by the way, um, running for president is a family affair. And I'm not just talking about my immediate family, but cousins and in-laws that Ann and I hadn't seen for decades showed up at events and volunteered hundreds of hours at campaign offices. One niece painted a portrait of me for a poster. Another solicited his business customers for donations. And he may have lost his job because of it. My family members are my heroes. America needs heroes. You don't have to be larger than life to be a hero, just larger than yourself. And we see heroes every day. Scoutmasters, primary teachers, missionaries, campaign volunteers, parents. I hope you'll choose to be a hero because this world needs a lot more of them. Now, one of the best and worst things about a campaign is that you get a lot of advice. 
Usually several times a day, someone in an audience would hand me a letter with their 100% surefire way for me to win an election. I was told to take bigger steps when I walked to show that I'm young and athletic. Um, another person said I should stop shaving for a few days to look more sexy. As if I needed that. Uh, of course... <laughs> Of course, the best advice comes from the people closest to you. Uh, having been a frequent speaker in church, I figured that I didn't need a lot of advice on giving a speech. Wrong. Political speeches are different than church speeches. My dad, by the way, when he was governor of Michigan, joked that he had once entered a campaign speech with, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. <laughs> my error wasn't that obvious, but my chief strategist close to me helped me to shorten my long stories to find applause lines and to slow down. Advice from your spouse, by the way, can be a tricky thing. Anne is my best advisor, but I also look uniquely to her for affirmation and support. She's perfected the art of first heaping on the praise and then ever so gently ladling on a word of advice. Because when it comes to marriage, reproving betimes with sharpness is not a good idea. It can lead to many lone and dreary nights. Uh, now, just like I did during the campaign, you need to have a life coach. You need to have someone who will tell you the truth, tell you that the perfect mate you've been looking for is no more perfect than you are, tell you when you're wrong, tell you what you need to do to make things right. I can assure you that finding someone who cares enough about you to tell you the truth and then is willing to take time to give you their counsel and their coaching, that's invaluable. Look for it. Now, one of my fondest campaign memories was my trip to Israel. I had dinner at the home of an old Israeli friend who I'd come to know at my first job after business school at the Boston Consulting Group. At that time, he called himself Ben Nate because his real name was too difficult for some Americans to pronounce. Today, we know him as Bibi Netanyahu, and he serves as Israel's prime minister. I also had the opportunity there to address an audience in front of the historic Jerusalem city wall. Anne and I stayed at the beautiful King David Hotel, opened in 1931. Our room had a breathtaking view of the old city. And as we were unpacking, Anne remarked with dismay that she had left her Bible at home. A few minutes later, there was a knock at the door. And there, an Israeli security guard handed her a Bible. Apparently, he was listening to everything said in our room. <laughs> Again, angels are silent notes taking. <laughs> now, our son Josh, who joined us on this trip, noted that there was a large leather book that sat on the coffee table in our room. It was the guest book for the hotel, and it was signed by many of the dignitaries who had stayed there. We saw the signatures of Margaret Thatcher, Jimmy Carter, President Obama, Richard Nixon, George Herbert Walker Bush, Tony Blair, and also, by the way, Madonna and Mono. And uh, we were duly impressed. But the next day, Anne and Josh went to see the garden tomb, believed to be Jesus' final earthly resting place. Of course, his signature is not in the King David Hotel guest book. Unlike the hotel's famous guests, he was not only a visitor to Jerusalem, he was its very foundation. We can never forget that we are his disciples. We may not hobnob with the famous, 
But in prayer, we can speak with God every day. I'm so very thankful that I found the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's informed who I am and to what my life has been devoted. It has provided the eternal ordinances of salvation and marriage. I love the church. I love the members of the church. I love the music of the church. It's my witness to each of you that following its precepts and its prophets will bring incomparable happiness now and forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the By Study and By Faith podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.